Welcome back to Now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop as we open up the gatefold vinyl sleeves, unfold cassette inlays, or slip out CD booklets. We will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation albums shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our own musical journeys. I hope that you'll enjoy sharing in some memories and insights. Please spread the word, leave me some feedback, like, share, and let me know your thoughts on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages with myself, Ian. Joining me for this episode is Ian Wade, a pop pundit, writer and sub-editor who currently freelances for a super deluxe edition, The Quietest, Classic Pop and the Sunday Times Culture TV pages, amongst others. He has in his time worked for Smash Hits, The Face, Vox, NME, Melody Maker, Official Chart Company, BBC Music, Time Out and for the 17 years was PR for the later show with Jules Holland. As well as occasional stints at the BBC's press office, Ian can also credit work on Top of the Pops Christmas specials, caption writer for Top of the Pops 2 and Sounds of the 70s. An occasional DJ who has sat in for Pete Pafidis on Soho Radio, Ian is also a pop star with his group Blood Everywhere and he's currently finally getting on with writing a book about gay pop culture. Ian, my goodness, I'm going to take a breath. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a breath, good heavens. <laughs> it's sort of like a, a bit of a sort of awake there, gosh. <laughs> it's nice to have you here. Can I first of all say congratulations on the recent release of the new LP? Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been doing really well. It's sort of always... As long as everything does better than the last one, you think, oh, that's great, you know. But I, the feedback for this has been amazing, and I'm, being, I'm really chuffed that people are sort of still buying it. So I, I had it as a semi-fictional thing for a while, you know, but now I'm sort of like, yeah, no, I'm out there, it's happy, it's good. So, no, I've been very, very pleased. I have to say it sounds fantastic in the kitchen. Well, no, the, the idea behind this one was kind of to be a bit more direct and kind of try and be a bit more pop. So I wanted to make something that you could play in the car and just go, oh, yeah, I like this. So, yes, this was all done with him. And it's all sort of three to four minutes length songs. And, um, yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. It took a while. Me and Kylie and everyone else in Q4 are trying to save 2020 at least with some pop music. So It's (laughs) certainly going a long way to keeping people's spirits up, which I think is something that we all need at the moment. So So anyway, listen, thank you so much for joining me here on Back to Now. And uh, for this episode, we are shamelessly decking the halls. We are going to be cracking open the eggnog and passing around the plate of mince pies in honour of now the Christmas album. Um, however, first, as is customary, it's always good to find out a bit about your growing up, your musical memories, your okay. influences as a listener. So how did, how did music come into your life and how has it been important? Well, I, I sort of grew up in a reasonably musical family. Uh, it wasn't like the Osmonds or anything, but, you know, there, was, there were lots of records about the house. My dad was 48 and my mum was 40 uh, in 69 when I was born. Uh, I've got four older sisters who kind of helped fill in all my music sort of education with certain moments where first single or whatever, first record shop. There weren't any Beatles albums or anything in our house. 
it was all the sort of stuff that he would kind of like the look of in maybe Woolworths. My mum, she's very musical, but she's a sort of tough nut to crack as far as favourite songs are concerned. She won't sort of go, oh, I like this at anything. So kind of things over the years I've sort of gleaned from her are things like, you know, being quite into Russ Conway, but then something like Fergal Sharkey, A a Good Heart, or Nicole's A Little Piece as well has been something she's got quite into recently, which is a bizarre sort of nearly 40-year-old record. And then something like George Ezra's Shotgun. So for a 91-year-old woman, that's that's quite a range. My dad was very much into the uh, sound of the Hammond organ. When I first started keyboard lessons, when I was like, like uh, 12, the Human League had played in Ipswich the day before. I went to this keyboard centre and I was kind of like, they're obviously going to be hanging around, seeing what the new keyboards are. Once I got there, it was all Hammond organs and, you know, the draw bars and the the techniques organs and what have you. And so I thought, oh, they're probably not going to be here. And uh, I got told off by my tutor by, I was kind of pressing the buttons like Ian Burden and you're supposed (laughs) to kind of keep your hands all very close rather than this dramatic <laughs> kind of top of the pop style keyboard playing yeah and so um but yeah my dad um used that as an opportunity to replace a piano with a hammond organ which again at the age of 12 you what i wanted something sexy you know but i learned how to play amazing grace and i love you because and all that my older sister janet she would have been 15 when i was born she was a bit of a rocker back in the day and when she got the first get married, and when she left a home and moved into the marital home, she gave me some of the sort of her old singles, almost like, oh, right, well, that I'm getting rid of these now. There's sort of like, you know, about 10 singles. I remember Sparks, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us, Shawadi Wadi's Hey Rock and Roll, and Dance with the Devil by Cozy Powell. And they're all incredible records, but to have those when you're like five is like, whoa. <laughs> she was also the first person to kind of come home from work and, and she'd brought smash hits back. The first one I had had Jimmy Percy on the cover, and so a bit of research suggests it was from April uh, 79. From then on, I was having it sort of put aside at the news agent. So my next sister's down, Pauline, she was kind of very reggae and Motown. And when I was sort of at eight, nine, ten, she would call me up from her office opposite a record shop, which seemed impossibly glamorous. And just as it was my birthday, she said, oh, like, you know, what, what do you like in the charts? And I'd reel off like five or six songs and then she'd get me those singles. And so I can remember the sort of clusters, like I think it was 76 where I had Sherbet How's That and Climax Blues Band. Couldn't get it right. Me and my sister Catherine would go down to the office. She'd help me out with a bit of change if I needed to buy like some singles. We'd sort of, after going dancing, we'd go and see her at the office and go back to hers for hand chips and top of the pot. Now, Christine, the next sister down, <laughs> she corrupted me into pop. I'd say from about 75 to sort of 79, there'd be at least sort of four or five brand new singles like every fortnight or so. In in the family collection, when I was aware of records, I guess, Hot Chocolate, Stylistics, uh, Real Thing, States Quo, Bowie, Barry White, Slade, lots of Motown, uh, Avco, Disco Soul Pop, all the, the good stuff, you know. She also had a a mate who uh, was a mobile DJ and he had this racket going on, which sounded amazing, which made me think, God, that's that's what I want to do in life. You you went through his catalogue of all the records he had and he would make 
tapes for you and so you would have your latest kind of compilation so again it was kind of like Spotify way before you know 40 yeah. years ago in a way she took me to buy my first record um this was at Debenhams in Ipswich uh in the town centre and the record department was this really dark space agey type place at yeah. the time that seemed to have everything so naturally I bought Chicago if I if you leave me now <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but as I say, it's a good enough start. And she also was there when uh, I bought my first album, which is Night Flight to Venus, Boney M. Her final flourish of kind of cursing me to a life of record uh, shops and kind of facts and nonsense. She bought me the first Guinness uh, British hit singles book. And uh, whoa, (laughs) just like the, the history of the charts and kind of where things were going and all this sort of stuff was just kind of blew my mind. My younger sister, Catherine, or five years older to me, she took up the baton with lots of disco kind of from about 79 to 85. Also, you know, she was very much into early 80s, smooth soul. Her boy, then boyfriend, now husband, exposed me to Prince. And then she also took me to my first nightclub as well. So, uh, yeah, they've all kind of given me the education, which perhaps my parents were a little bit too old to sort of do, really. <laughs> The kind of main thing is like none of them had any albums really. There were your Motown chart busters and reggae chart busters and there wasn't the Bowie albums or the Pink Floyd or anything. The classic iconic things that every 70s music based household might have had. Uh, It was all literally like seven inches and so they became my playthings in a way. My first kind of compilations that I remember in the house were things more like Top of the Pops, Number 15, The Lady in the, the Denim. Even then I realised, oh, they're not quite what I'm hearing, you know. Yeah. And then there was another one, uh, the Arrival label called Contour. That was volume five, and that had things like Cindy Incidentally and Ballpark Incident. And again, all this sort of glam kind of filtered through a sieve slightly, you know. Yeah. The first actual K-Tel multi-artist one I remember is something called 22 Dynamic Hits Volume 2. That's from 1972. Uh, I can visibly remember tearing the sleeve and drawing over the label because I was stupid. But the tracks on that, there's Get It On, T-Rex, Goodbye to Love, Carpenters, Bill Withers, Lean On Me, Sly and the Family Stone, Olivia Newton-John, Johnny Cash, and plus Hot Butters, Popcorn. So all of my, yeah. my pop... Fi- oh, and Two Trickery Tips, which, you know... Yeah, that was kind of the the first one I remember in the house. The first one I actually called my own, if you ignore Stu Pop's Pop Party, Night Moves yeah, from yeah. 1979. Uh, I got that that Christmas alongside Abba's Greatest Hits 2 and Rapper's Delight, so that was quite a good haul. Yeah, they had Blondie, Video Killed the Radio Star, had an Oxy Music, Sister Sledge, Crusaders, and Eat Ward. By 1979, I think I was sort of well on my way to kind of this is me sort of thing because I was you know my singles buying was kind of focusing mostly on like disco and pop I mean you know there's Yes Sir I Can Boogie Black Is Black uh, Get Up and Boogie anything boogieing really um, but also things like obviously Blondie and Oliver's Army I remember physically buying you know and things like Rolls Royce and Abba and Chic and ELO then the specials and madness turned up and that was like oh, okay, you started having an allegiance to a band in a way, you know, as opposed to just liking the odd song as you kind of 
had it. So they turned up, and to quote St. Etienne, I, I was lured by the strange and important sound of the synthesizer, <laughs> and it all went uh, pop futurists for a bit, primarily the Human League, yeah. and, you know, obviously Soft Cell, Depression Mode Japan. The next people to kind of waltz into my life that I got obsessed by were New Order. Poster-wise, it became Frankie Goes Hollywood and then Zangton Tum. And, and then for the the remaining 80s, it was kind of the Smiths. And then I had a big thing about The Cure, who I still love, and obviously Prince and Mary Chain. So over the 80s, I think, you know, anyone lucky to go from 10 to 19, from yeah. 1980 to 1989, you couldn't wish for a better decade. I mean, you, you know, everybody of certain particular age groups and generations have their, oh, it was brilliant then. But seriously, you're going from madness to Manchester. Yeah. You're going via Adamant, Haircut 100, S Express, Madonna, Sisters of Mercy, My Body, Valentine, Acid House, you know, all these incredible things that happened through that, out that decade. The 80s still resonates incredibly strongly because I don't think it's just about nostalgia. I think it's about the, the high quality of music that was there. You know, it's sort of quite strange with the last two decades. I mean, that's something that, especially with Christmas albums as well, it's quite noticeable how the decades have kind of really changed. I still try to keep them. <laughs> I sound like some, hey, kid. But, uh, <laughs> I sort of keep on top of things. There's always something interesting coming out. Um, you know, I'm as excited about Paranoid London stuff that came out on Bandcamp as I am about the Miley Cyrus and Stevie Nicks kind of team up. Pop culture is what's happening at any given time. Mm. And it's, you know, pop culture hasn't stopped. It's how you look for it and how you embrace it is, for me, the most important thing. It's still there. <laughs> As it is that time of year, let's take a closer look at Now the Christmas Album. It was released on the 11th of November 1985. It was number one for two weeks across Christmas 85. What's your memories of the album? I remember seeing it in the record department in Debenhams again, spookily enough, and just seeing that the Now brand was attached. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, I mean, Now was still in its infancy, but about to be at volume six, I think. And I thought, oh, well, you know, this is slightly different from your sort of usual Kato and Ronco, who were kind of dying at that point uh, with no thanks to kind of EMI Virgins Now yeah. thing and hits as well. And so I thought, oh, you know, this is quite good. And when I looked at it, it was quite spooky because Band-Aid and Wham were starting to climb the charts again. So it's surprisingly contemporary again for that year. Again, because it was the Now brand, I thought, oh, well, this, this is going to be the right version. So it's not like, you know, some sort of session singer type thing. There was a gap in the market. You have to go back to that context of, you know, the middle of the 80s. There wasn't the same market for Christmas music as, as there is now. No, exactly. Um, Again, looking back at kind of going through the tracks and things, the culture of Christmas music over here is very significantly different to as it is in America, where a lot of your artists would be releasing people like, say, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra back in the day, going through kind of through the 60s, Barbara Streisand, Stevie One, Johnny Cash. A Christmas album wasn't a big deal. You know, they'd be releasing two, maybe three albums a year. So that if you've got Nelson Riddle's orchestra and, <laughs> to hand and you can quite easily rip through, you know, 12 Christmas songs in an afternoon, then that was an album. Over here, we didn't have 
a Christmas album by any particular big stars. The Beatles didn't do one or no. Cliff. And so our culture over here was more about the singles. It was singles, yeah. And a very strong tradition, particularly through the 70s, mm. of massive million-selling singles. You're talking about growing up through the 70s. You say to somebody 73, they automatically say Slade and Wizard. You mm. pick a year like 76, people will say Shawadi Wadi. Or they may say Johnny Mathis, but they'll probably say Shawadi Wadi. But, <laughs> you know, Boney M conquering Christmas 78. But as you say, you know, there wasn't the album culture in the UK. Cliff didn't release a Christmas album until I think it was 1990 once he'd wrapped up yeah. like three or four sort of Christmas singles and sort of added to that. I mean, there was Little Town, which I thought, again, yeah. that's something that I would have thought might have been on there, which, I, you know, I dug up a couple of years ago. But then Little Town, I was doing some stuff with Classic Pop about um, Cliff Richard for a special, and his period of singles between sort of 77 to kind of about 88, you know, there's some amazing stuff, and Little Town doesn't get as celebrated, perhaps, as Mistletoe no. Wine does. You know, our idea of Christmas albums up until this album... I think every every charity shop, you've probably seen a copy of Jim Reeves's Christmas album. Oh, yes. Every charity shop, more times than you've possibly seen relations. But, you know, the budget end had, you know, Mario Lanza, Jim Reeves, uh, Nat King Cole, all this sort of stuff. So, you know, Motown Christmas and things like that. You, my experience, Motown Christmas, or should I say my other half, years ago when I was kind of making... Uh, sort of a his first kind of Christmas CD. He was telling me about oh, has it got one little Christmas tree by Stevie Wonder on? And that was like one I'd never heard. And I, I started looking on Discogs a couple of years ago to try and get a vinyl copy of this Motown Christmas so we could have it in the house. I showed him the cover and he said, "No, it's, that's not it." And then he realised that the one he knew was this label called Sound Super, which yeah. had kind of bought the original one and just done a different cover. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting that, again, the, the Christmas album, album culture up until then was kind of basically budgets and MFPs and kind of imported Christmas yeah. albums. Because, I mean, the two Christmas albums I remember at home, my mum used to work at St. Joseph's College around the corner and they did had this amazing choir and they released their own kind of private pressing of them doing Christmas carols. And the other one was um, Tijuana Christmas by the Chirero Band, yeah. which is just joyous. But yeah, it was those two, and then you'd dig out your Slade and Wizard or whatever, but you weren't, they would put that on in the background as a soundtrack to the day, rather than like, oh, let's sit down and listen to this type yeah. thing. So here we see a very mobilised targeted Christmas album. And I think looking at the cover, the Now brand is there, that lovely mid-80s Now lightning flash, the three balls are there. So straight away people are seeing a brand on there. You look at the the pictures on the front, we've got Band-Aid, Paul McCartney, Wham, Wizard, Queen and Slade. So yeah. straight off the mark, this doesn't say budget album. No, that, this is the biggies. Yeah, exactly. Because 1984 had been such a rich year for Christmas. Obviously, Band-Aid and Wham! being two of the biggest selling singles of all time, you know. 
but there was also Queen. Gary Glitter had just been like in the top 10 with that. And yeah, so it yeah. was under the first year since 73, which is kind of the other year that's kind of primarily on this album, that pop had gone Christmassy. But also, you know, you had Power of Love, Frankie Goes Hollywood, not necessarily a Christmas song, we'll get onto that in a bit. You also had We All Stand Together by Paul McCartney, which isn't a July record. It's very much like a record that well, works at Christmas. And I think, yeah, you know, we're going to come on to that later about, again, this how in this country we love music that isn't Christmassy, but it's Christmassy. <laughs> One and a quarter million copies in one week. The fastest selling single ever. Britain's brand new number one, Band Aid. Do they know it's Christmas time? I mean, obviously, Band Aid, well, I mean, what to say about Band-Aid? It's kind where do of you begin end- with Band-Aid? I know. Where do you begin with Band-Aid? I mean, I, I've had many thoughts about Band-Aid over the years. The, the key thing that, that I've sort of settled on is that it was kind of the end of new pop, in a yeah. way. It was kind of the coronation of like 1981 to 1984's biggest acts. We talk about a record that was very much our pop moment, our pop stars, now 36 years on. But, you know, and everyone has a Band-Aid. I mean, you know, I'm quite fond of the 89 one. Yeah. Uh, 2001, 2004 was very real. and mm, yeah. yeah. And the nicest thing you can say about the 2014 one is that it exists. But yeah. you had your Spandau and your Duran and Boy George. These were all kind of the people who could have quite easily knocked out a Christmas single. And this kind of was their Christmas, obviously their Christmas single by default. It sits very much at an important historical moment in British pop history. And I yeah. think, you know, whether you've got a view either way of it, you know, I've heard, I've heard people talk about the musical merit of Band-Aid or whatever, or how people contributed or et cetera, et cetera. You can't fault what it is within British pop culture. No, exactly. You can imagine the team at now, you can't imagine there being much argument about what track one, side one was going to be. Mm. You, they couldn't have released this without that, yeah. the, the access to that song. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's always going to be one of those records that's iconic in a way. Out of a lot of the Christmas classics, that's actually done much better in the streaming age now. I mean, yeah. obviously Wham and Mariah kind of clog up the top three and Pogues. Band-Aid actually had its best year last year, I think, in, uh, yeah. when it got back to number seven or something. Yeah. And it, the, the beauty of Christmas music is that it just it's more about the music rather than the vagaries of fashion or who's actually singing it. It's a sort of very um, egalitarian type music where all sorts of things and ideas. And I mean, I'd love to kind of do like a, a book of how these people wrote the songs. I mean, ideally it'd be like, you know, in the case of Slade, oh, it was the hottest day in the, of the year in August. <laughs> yeah. Recorded it. Or, uh, you know, Cliff saying, oh, we put some tinsel around a microphone in July, you know, and all this yeah. sort of stuff. But again, it's sort of, you couldn't have not had that on that album. And again, because it was a hit again the next year, by the time this came out, it, it's possibly one of the most contemporary things they could have done, really. <laughs> So we then move on to the 1973 doubleheader, Wizard and Slade. Notably here, Roy Wood with Wizard. Well, basically what you hear now is the 1981 kind of almost note-for-note re-record because the original tapes had been lost. So they'd they'd re-recorded it in 1981, I believe, yeah. But that's the version you hear now. 
I, I know a lot of bands and artists have been re-recording their music just so they get the rights again properly, you know. Yeah. Um, and But that was one of the earliest examples of that sort of thing. Uh, but basically because the tapes be lost. Because, well, you know, one of the things that is very noticeable about this, this album it's like Christmas music wasn't particularly well produced. You know, it was kind of the end of a session. Oh, I've got this. Nobody was kind of tinkering for days over this particular song that they were just going to bung out for the fans. You know, I wish it could be Christmas does has the whole spectre bells and whistles type thing. But, you know, I, I imagine Roy Wood probably did spend a bit of time on it. But compared to sort of like the gloss of something like Mariah Carey or something like that, Christmas music, again, yeah. we, we didn't really take it particularly seriously. But then you listen to Merry Xmas, Everybody by Slade. Again, not the, the greatest, clearest, most remastered type no. sounding. I love it to bits and I love Slade, uh, but it, it's kind of this word, once you get past the singing and whatever the music is just this kind of whirring dirge in the background it's not like anyone's kind of being a virtuoso on there or whatever but both of those songs though strike me they strike me as songs that would have been played constantly at christmas parties office parties house parties because they have that kind of just that kind of festive chug about them Mm. they just move along so much of these songs be it songs from 84 or 73 they're embedded in people's memory and that's why these songs constantly keep getting revisited on a year-to-year basis and also they weren't sad again as you like you say that they're part of your records basically and we forget how huge Slade were during that year. They were the first band since the Beatles to have a single go in at number one. The yeah. Beatles only ever had one song go in at number one. Slade had three in that year, yeah. which this was the third. It's just staggering how massive they were. They were huge. They were huge. Yeah. Because maybe for a while, because of Merry Christmas, everybody, that overshadowed how amazing they were in a way. But I mean, Merry Christmas, everybody is amazing anyway. The Top of the Pops from Christmas 1984, which you can find on YouTube, where everybody in the studio is doing Do They Know It's Christmas? And they're Slade there. They're part of the gang as well, you know. And yeah, yeah, the mammoth task of saying, right, can you just sing these lines standing (laughs) there? And can you just like stand next to Bronsky beat or whatever? And all this sort of thing. And it was just like, again, it was sort of a very magic moment. And it's almost like... um, Almost like once 1985, the next Top of the Box came around, it was like, right, enough yeah. of that. <laughs> I mean, you can almost imagine, I'm thinking that would have been a Michael Hurl production, probably that Christmas 84. You can almost see them in the gallery watching the monitors going, this is good. This, yeah. is, this is really, no matter what camera you cut to here, you're getting, you know, classic pop angles <laughs> and moments here. And it's, you know, it's again, easy to look back now, but that's, that's, that's vintage Top of the Pops. Yeah, Top of the Pops has been responsible for so many kind of Starman moments. So we've then got Wham. Yeah, I mean, you can't beat Last Christmas, really. It's sort of... And it is interesting tracking the way Christmas music has, you know, trends come and go over the years. Wham has slipped in and out of fashion in, in, in some ways, but it has never gone away. And I think now more so it really has become almost one of those top five iconic Christmas songs. That whole year of 84, to me, there was kind of really, 
Wham and Frankie as the big things. Yeah. Wham, if you look at their career, I mean, ultimately, they only released something like less than 30 songs together. And so you look at like Fantastic where each single kind of was had a theme, almost like Frankie, there was the doll, there was kind of <laughs> girl, girlfriends and um, then bad boys is sort of like, you know, fighting the system of yeah. parents. When they came back in 84, it's almost like they were well-drilled and, you know, even with the album called Make It Big, it was kind of suddenly, you know, they didn't go in at number one with uh, Wake Me Up. It was sort of just bang, bang. There was Wake Me Up, Careless Whisper. You know, so George knew what he was do- gonna, planning to do that year, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to launch my solo career. We'll release a couple of singles off this album and that will come out sort of like at the right time of the year. Oh, and I'll, you know, I'll chuck in a Christmas bonus as well, you know. But yeah, last Christmas, that, that's gone through its sort of, Mm, that's slightly cheesy type face, but now it is again that that's had its sort of second life of I think the last six years it's been in the top five yeah. at Christmas. Yeah. And everything about it, you know, you've got the visual of the video, it has got a well produced sound to it. It just works and it stands the test of time. Four tracks in, and you've had two massive hits from '84 two massive hits from 73 and the album is off and running those first four records between them sold something like 10 million now yeah. do you know what I mean yes. over the years which brings us to track five Elton John Step Into Christmas now this is where now the Christmas album it gets a bit sort of interesting really Step Into Christmas only got to number 24 in, in that legendary year 73 yeah. again it's Elton's kind of like thanks to the fans you know it's not like it's uh, overseen as much as perhaps the albums were and, and it's one of my favourite Christmas songs um, now but I'd never heard of it when this no. album first came no. out and so you know initially I was like oh you know but now as I say it's one of those ones when you hear that kind of tinkling fading in and I think again you know you've got to contextually jump back to 85 Elton John was in a good place musically he'd had that run through 83, 84, 85 so you can understand taking that song and positioning it right there slap bang in the middle of side one yeah no exactly and also it's one of those ones that it's easy to safe enough to say had it not been on this album that it'd be very rare wouldn't have the kind of cachet it has now do you know what I mean it reached its high last year thanks to downloads it managed number eight last Christmas He'd been at Live Aid, Nikita was in the top five at this point, all yep. this sort of thing. So it's a no-brainer, but as I say, it was completely new to me. I, I thought it was actually like a new track or something when I first yeah. read it, you know, because I'd never heard of it. But then followed by My Goldfield. You look back now, and, and this is one of these radio staples that is there throughout the whole festive period, but it's it's an odd track. It is an odd track. There's this kind of handful of 70s Christmas hits, you know, like Steel I Span and Jethro Tull, that has this sort of folky, proggy type vibe to it. It reminds me of kind of Christmas mornings when I was growing up and hearing it on the radio. Admittedly, it had, you know, there was Moonlight Shadow and everything the previous yeah. like in 83. And plus it was a number four hit. It wasn't yeah, and I mean, it's an absolute mainstay, though, of the Christmas albums from, from there on. If you track your way through the Now albums as they kind of continue to evolve, Indulce Jubilo always pops up. And I think, again, it comes back to that nostalgic mem- memory feeling that we've got in this country for Christmas. You know, you're 
vision of a Christmas morning is probably snap for lots and lots of people across the country. I'm going to put in here a very personal nod for the B-side of Indulge Jubilee. Right. B-side's called On Horseback. <laughs> and, and many, many, well, very few DJs would flip it over, but it's, it's, it's worth digging out, I would say. The opening lines are, I like beer, I like cheese, I like the smell of the westerly breeze. But what I like more than this is to be on horseback. It has a children's choir on it. It has sleigh bells. Hitting Spotify immediately after that. I kind of always just thought, oh, well, it might be an album track. But no, I, I'm going to have to dig that out. It's, um, yeah, and certainly if, you've, if, if you feel you've heard Indulge Jubilee enough over the years, give it a flip. It's, listen to me, give it a, give it a flip, like, like, we've, like we've got the seven inch here. But yeah, it's, it's, it's worth a dig, to be honest. So at this point, we're on track seven of side one, which is Gary Glitter. The undiscussable, obviously. So there we are. Yeah, I think we can move on, really. Yeah, uh, and yeah, um, yeah, and I mean, the thing is, you could imagine it still being on compilations now had it not been. Yeah, it's a very post-shaky type yes. rock and roll type record. Yeah, and we'll come to him in a minute. We, we've got shaky around the corner, but before that, we've got Paul McCartney. Wonderful Christmas time, um, nineteen seventy-nine. Paul McCartney coming out of wings. You can see things start to change. He's found all those lovely keyboards that Grace Macker too. Yeah. Um, more for musicians uh, making records, which are effectively them tinkering with new technology while off their face. Yes. Um, <laughs> and here's a great example of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the Christmas single was kind of such a novelty and nobody expected them to have this afterlife when they made it. I love it. I, I'm a big fan of this one. It's, it's had a sort of sporadic rebirth in streaming, and but it's good that it's out there. It's sort of, you know, when people kind of do that, that slightly tedious Twitter thing about like, oh, name an underrated Paul McCartney song, and they say, oh, temporary secretary. It's like, yeah, mate, we've got that. Wonderful Christmas time is kind of yeah. one of those records that, especially, you know, Wings were kind of finishing and all this sort of stuff. And, Again, it's worth considering this. This is Paul McCartney, uh, you know, a high stock position in the eighties, yeah, um, and had kind of captured that kind of Christmas thing through Pipes of Peace, through We All Stand Together. Yeah, he'd been with Michael Jackson, and he, you know, he'd had like a really good run. Mm. His eighties, the first half of the eighties. In fact, his whole eighties. But as far as sort of chart, you know, No More Lonely Nights, Say Say yeah. Say, Ebony and Ivory. He was doing all right, you know, and um, you'd put, if you've got Paul McCartney in your catalogue at this point, you would go, yeah, we'll have that. Which takes us to the last song on side one, which is Shaken Stevens. Now, as this album's released, Shaken Stevens is number one in the charts with Merry Christmas, Everyone. Yeah, which spookily, he had planned to release Christmas 1984 and then sort <laughs> sense what was going on and thought... <laughs> Nah. <laughs> I'll hold that one back a year. Yeah. So this Blue Christmas was a, it's a track from the Shaking Stevens EP uh, from 1982. Uh, it basically essays Blue Christmas from the Elvis version. It's practically a photocopy, really. He's, he was the biggest single solo act of the, the decade, you know, yeah. so you'd have him on there. <laughs> Um, 
we should point out actually we're talking about the cd version well yes now this is the thing yeah because at this point uh compact disc has two tracks missing off the original yep. album version. Uh, those two tracks, uh, John and Yoko, yep. and Greg Lake, I believe, and Father Christmas. Which I'm guessing must be a licensing thing. Well, the thing is, the CD came out the year after the album. A lot of the things on these Christmas albums, uh, in the world of compilations in general, some of these people will only license their track for like a certain period of time. Yeah. I know it's got a lot savvier in the... <clears throat> in the last few years but that's why a lot of these compilations kind of relicense particular tracks and why some fall out of favor in a way if, yeah, yeah. So. so vinyl version their vinyl cassette version you've got john and yoko starting off side two you've got greg lake i believe in father christmas and then the cd skips straight to chris debar now a spaceman came traveling it wasn't a hit it was number one in ireland but uh, it wasn't a hit in the british charts until no. afterwards he was very much an albums artist at this time. I think in 84, there was an album called Man on the Line or something that was his highest placing album up until that point. Obviously, after this album came out, the next year it's Lady in Red and then suddenly this kind of... Ugh. But yeah, it's a weird... This is one of those records that... If you were putting together this album from scratch again, imagining that, that we haven't had this legacy of stuff, I would have put something like Boney M on, you know, because hits 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 mm. but i don't know whether boney m were kind of maybe seen as a bit sort of cheesy or passe at this point or you know this appearance on that out al- this album as we sort of cover a bit later is kind of the the main body of this album all of these tracks are literally give or take two or three have been on every christmas compilation regardless of whatever label has released it yeah and spaceman came traveling it is the sort of song that, you know, there are worse Christmas songs and there are worse musicians. I mean, it is the association on this album that has made this record what it is. And it's sort of... I suppose know. what it does, though, is it again indicates the warts and all element of what makes these compilation albums either so good or so memorable because somebody has sat and matched up these songs and we can remember songs that sit well together. We can remember songs that don't sit well together. And that's, whole, I suppose, part of the tapestry of what makes a compilation album. I mean, it's the sort of thing that, you know, if we were, we wouldn't rush for, but it is one of those tracks. I, I can see why it would appeal. You know, this album is very much aimed at the family. Yes, there'll be kids or younger people who would love the idea of Wham and Band-Aid, and then you've got your aunties and uncles perhaps kind of remembering Slade and Wizard and Elton John. And then Christopher is kind of almost something for the parents in a way, that, that very middle-of-the-road type thing. It's a very lucky positioning and label and moment in his career, perhaps yeah. more luckier than Lady in Red, really. For a lot of people who bought this album, and a lot of people did buy this album, this would be their introduction probably to Christopher. Yeah, and it didn't really tally with what did actually. No, <laughs> you know, Lady in Red no. is kind of this smoochy sort of daytime FM type thing. And this, yeah. I bet he kind of looks at Cliff's Christmas records in fury, really, because Cliff has managed to kind of combine pop and religion perhaps slightly less cack handedly. And- I think so, yeah. 
let's go back because we can't really miss out John and Yoko <laughs> and Greg Lake. Yeah, no, no biggie. <laughs> no, you, you, you could imagine the comments if we just skipped past those. Right, so Happy Christmas War is over. So number two, 1972, and it also went to number two again as a post-death thing in 1980. I, I sort of get it. When, when real music snobs talk about Christmas music, it's like when they talk about, oh, yeah, well, the Pogues or John yeah. and John Lennon are kind of the ones, you know. And it's like, well, I've always found it a little bit mawkish, but mm. again, it is loved it and kind of not wanted to hear another note of it over the years. Um, it's there and it's it fulfills the purpose and it was iconic and you can understand why it's on this album or on the vinyl of this album because again it was a huge hit and yeah for a Beatle that's the first post Beatles Christmas release I think yeah yeah and again when they were compiling the you know the first version of this album you can see how that's going to draw listeners in on a mainstream compilation album with a now brand. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's the familiarity breeds contempt thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's sort of, I mean, he was revolutionary. You know, I loved, I preferred the Yoko Ono albums and stuff like that and all this sort of stuff. I think it's just a case of, uh, there'll be one point when I'm sort of in Asda in the forthcoming years on Asda FM, it will come up. I know I'll, probably send me to tears you know just like oh my god what a record you know and like well you know greg lake to a smaller thing again that was the number two hit in 1975 and it's very contemporary very sort of anti-consumerism the christmas you get you deserve um you know considering it's kind of got all these elements of uh in and the sort of prog pedigree that obviously greg lake had he manages to do it far more successfully than, say, Yes, it's a clever song. It's a well-constructed song. Lyrically, it's on the button. You know, it's great that we hear it on a year-to-year basis. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's sort of, um, it was kind of a bit worrying a couple of years ago because, well, he died, was it December death? And, you know, in recent years, it's sort of like, especially George Michael, uh, John Lennon, there is this element of tragedy and sadness to a lot of these songs now. Chris Rear very nearly died a couple of Decembers That's ago. That's right, as yeah. Well. Oh my God, don't make a Christmas record, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jonah Louie, as we see, yeah. I, I just love this song. I never get tired of Stop the Cavalry. No, me neither. It's, um, I'd loved kitchen at parties yeah. single and this seemed obviously slightly different but that you know because the horns but then when you listen to it it's kind of got that synth thing going on in the background and then he kind of pretty much vanished i mean yes we can kind of wikipedia is available out there for people to find out what he actually did next no what he did do next is perhaps basically have a pension fund by this yeah. one song and yeah. you yeah. know if you're lucky to do that that's brilliant you know you look at everybody else on this this compilation all huge massive careers and then he's literally a two-hit wonder but what two hits you what know? two hits there was something about that kind of synthy sounds you know it, it just worked really well and it's a great song it's like it can't, it's sort of almost sort of pinpoints the venn diagram of this this entire exercise you've got the sort of since sort of marking the future or the now or the current and the brass which mm. the previous christmases you'd had things like uh brick house and rastrick but you could hear that on terry wogan but you'd hear it on radio one and i mean yeah 
it's just so jolly and I love it. I'm very fond memories of, because I ended up with two copies of it. Because my mum's friend, Dot, who was lovely, she bought it for me because she thought I'd like it. I'd not mentioned. And so I didn't even want to kind of like take the other one back. It was just like, oh, that's really lovely. And, and so, yeah, it's, I love that record to bits. It's 40 years. <laughs> 40 years now. <laughs> it's mad. We're talking about a record that's now 40 years old. And like, you know, on this album, when Bing Crosby, right, Christmas, that was only like 42 years old when now Christmas, when it was featured on Christmas. But it sounded as if it came from a different era. And yes. whereas something like Stop the Cavalry still sounds fresh, which I don't know if 1985, the Beach Boys' Little St. Nick sounded particularly contemporary. Again, this was never a hit. No, you know this. This kind of maybe a concession to kind of the budget album element. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Beach Boys in '85, not really. No. You know, later '80s perhaps with Kokomo and all that sort of stuff. But it was a name. It was a Christmas thing. It was EMI. It it was an easy one to license. I mean, next to Jonah Louis, this song sounded old. Yeah, you know, it didn't even sound particularly Christmassy. No, I mean, it's sort of just the sleigh bells towards the end, but it, I don't know, maybe they were kind of after the Phil Spector stuff. You know, it harks to that sort of sound in a way, you know, the uh, massive pop thing. Yeah. But, you know, it didn't, as I say, it wasn't a hit. The album did all right in the Billboard holiday charts. I mean, the fact that they have a holiday chart suggests how big Christmas was. Yeah. It's now had this afterlife of being on every Christmas compilation since, you know. And, you know, they could have picked, you know, there's about 13 tracks on there. There's various tracks they could have picked off yeah. that album. And to go for the little St. Nick, yeah. I mean, brave, but again, it's now engraved in our minds. So then we're back to 1984 for yeah. Queen. <laughs> well, Queen had a very successful 1984 and they'd released the works and discovered video and all this nonsense. Is there anything about whether they were invited on Band-Aid or not? I don't know. It's sort of a... I don't know. Um, it, de- it depends which version of events you want to, to read or believe, I think. I don't know if, if they were. I'll be honest, this, this to me is not a high point of this album for me. No, it just it sounds a bit miserable, um, but it's miserable in a kind of non-warming, melancho- melancholic way. They steer clear to Band-Aid by making sure they kept 20 places away from them in the charts. <laughs> you know, I suspect, and I mean, Brian May has claimed that it could the reason why it wasn't such a big hit is because they hadn't made a video for it. And you think, mm. well, really, Brian? Do you know what I mean? There, there's still a few records about them that didn't have videos. I don't know if I'm ever going to watch. Sorry, I know lots of people who love Queen. But yeah. Let, let, let's stop throwing shade at Queen. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's go back to the safe zone of this of of the seventies. Mud, lonely this Christmas. Well, number one in seventy four. It always seemed a very chilly pub. Watney's Party Seven and John Player special type Christmas that's evoked here, like an old drunk kicked out and not allowed near the kids vibe. Waking up headachy and frozen in a single bed sit and with some skimpy tinsel you know as a band mud were amazing i mean tiger feet is one of the most exciting records ever made but this it's like the east enders of christmas pop it's the sort of you tune into christmas day east enders if you've had a crap christmas you'd watch east enders because someone's gonna have a worse one but it will involve murder or arson or something like that anyway 
I remember it cropping up on EastEnders in uh, their first Christmas one with the Den and Ange uh, oh, divorce yeah. papers playing in the background in the pub. And I remember, I think it was playing at Colin's flat. He was bidding himself the best of the season with a glass of champagne and a self-coded Christmas greeting on his trendy ha- Apple Mac because he was, you know, the yuppie outsider. And he was kind of talking to Dot and he was unsure if his bit of rough was going to make it away from his family for an hour or two. That to me is kind of for a lot of people is the reality you know you yeah. kind of, me and my other half we go to our individual families so you know you put all your more normal life on ice to kind of like feel a bit lonely or be part of the family or kind of like walk into these sort of it's almost the flip side of the Slade and wizard really isn't it you yeah know, you've, got, you've got the kind of early part of the evening party and then you've got that bit later on in the evening, which pretty much everybody experiences at some point over Christmas um, of mud. That early, early 70s was the rock and roll revival thing. So Mm. there's a very targeted approach in that songwriting. When they'd finished writing it, you could almost see them winking at each other going, Oh, Christmas number one. Yeah, and you're right. You're most Elvis there, Liz. Les, Liz. Um, <laughs> you know, everyone wants the perfect Christmas. This kind of is the one that creeps in the background whilst you're not having your perfect Christmas. No, respect to Mud. I love them. I think also with the taxidermist puppet thing he had on the top oh, of Oh, yeah. Rob Davis has got his big sparkly earrings and Bubbles. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, you know, it's a very British Christmas. Isn't it it is a very British Christmas. I mean, <laughs> it, it is the sort of tinned ham, Watney's pale ale kind of Christmas. Nineteen seventy-six sees the big chart Christmas battle. Shawadi Wadi, under the moon of love, bossing the chart was going to be the Christmas number one, and then in steps Johnny Mathis. Yeah, I, I, I feel a bit sorry for Shawadi Wadi in a way. They're kind of the madness of rockabilly in a way. They were kind of the band that lots of kids liked and lots of adults liked, but there was something fun about them. But they were always this ersatz kind of idea of rock and roll. But then Johnny was, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a Terry Wogan kind of Mm. sponsored hit, really. Johnny Mathis, you know, around that time in 76, or was it the next year, he had a couple of big sort of disco-y type hits Mm -hmm. Made and then went on to make an album with Chic that was unreleased for years and is amazing. Even then, you know, he'd been making records for since about like the mid 50s or something like that. And so for him to kind of be number one then without dying first or anything like that, <laughs> just <laughs> was very strange. When a child is born, Soliado, the English language lyrics were written by a guy called Fred Jay, who also wrote hits for people like uh, Boney M. He'd written Rasputin and Mar Baker. So he was kind of obviously the. Uh, Max Miller or, or whatever. Max Martin, sorry, not Max. Oh, no, Max Miller's Christmas album. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, no confusing thing. Max Miller with Max Martin is kind <laughs> of like a thing. But yeah, um, so he, he was kind of the hit maker de jour of the mid-70s, yeah. I'd say. Um, but yeah, again, I, I don't have anything against Johnny Matheson. You'd have it on this album, completely understandable, yeah. but... You can see the team pulling this album together. They didn't have to go too far to find these songs because these these songs have been big hits. Mm. You know, again, 76, you know, you're within a decade of this album being released. So you're looking back at the big hits 
And yeah, we've we've talked about the missing tracks of this, but this, you know, you can see Johnny Mathis absolutely being in there. It had been a huge hit in 76. Yeah, it's the ideal Christmas number one, you know, of yeah. which there haven't been that many really, to be honest. No. If we're looking at like a history of, say, 60, almost 65 years now of, of the singles chart, it's a no-brainer to have a, a record that's, you know, again, almost contemporary really compared to kind of some of the other tracks on here. And then the Christmas song. That is the biggest selling Christmas record of all time. And due to sheet music and everything back from like, I think the original version was kind of recorded in 1942 and so yeah we can contextualize Slade's Merry Christmas now is 47 years old whereas this was only 42 years old yeah, now, yeah. now but sounded like a different world it's a no-brainer it's kind of what if somebody was buying a Christmas album would want to look at would want on there you know they would sit through all the pop stuff and kind of think well yeah but as long as it's got Bing on you know that's kind of the Rosetta Stone, shall we say, of kind of Christmas records, you know, it's kind of all begins with that. We sort of forget what Bing Crosby did for music back in the day. I, I, I wrote some, something earlier this year and I was kind of going through it and he sort of made his sort of radio debut with a weekly 15-minute show. It featured on 10 of the top 50 songs of 1931. Uh, it had over 100 hits in the kind of sheet music in early rock and roll years. During the Great Depression 1934, he suggested that singles should be cheaper than a dollar, leading to many acts signing to Decca because of that. He worked throughout the war. He learned German, you know, just so he could build his sort of uh, audience. And he was christened Der Bingle by German listeners. But also he invented tapes. He invented the home taping revolution. There's pictures of him back in the day of all the high-tech equipment. He, he wanted to reach as many people as possible with his radio show. So with the home taping, he also helped develop the video recorder. So it's like, oh my God, you know, kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> but aside from all that sort of stuff, White Christmas, you can't really kind of dispute being on here at all. It brings into kind of question, what happens when you, you're known for two Christmas songs? Bing Crosby, White Christmas, yeah. But Bing Crosby and David Bowie, which could have quite easily been on this CD. Yeah, which one do you pick? But no, White Christmas is, is I mean, you can't. I'm not even going to kind of try to sort of clamber on it and dismantle it, really. It is. It's a great end to the Christmas album. We started by saying that up to this point, 1985, there wasn't an album of this nature in the marketplace. And what a great way to finish that with White Christmas. Exactly. And again, it turns the album into, rather than just an assemblage of tracks, gives it a sort of narrative, because that's, it's almost like, oh, well, this is the Christmas that we know or want, and, you know, the warm feeling at the end. You've kind of had the giddiness of kind of all the big pop hits and excitement and kind of novelty and this, that and the other. But that's what it's all about at the end, you know, and it's kind of a perfect way to kind of close it, really. These songs are all quite disparate, but they completely hang together as an identity of what Christmas in the UK is like. Literally 90% of this album, these have been the tracks that have been on 
every Christmas album since whatever label or whatever person yep. angle, you know, if it's meant to be sort of pro cheesy, pro this, pro that, these are the tracks that you'll find on every Christmas album. Some have gone in and out of flavour, but you know, as I say, now Christmas has been sort of come out in various iterations mm. now for thirty-five years, and it has pretty much this. This is the yeah. This is the spine of all of those albums. You know, you can you can look back and see how the how the albums evolved, and there's artists that are, that have come since. There's artists that were released before this album, but there's very few songs I would argue that you would need to add to this to make the definitive Christmas album. No, exactly. Uh, I, I'm completely with you on that. I mean, how influential this is it, when you're in. A supermarket or in a department store you will hear these tracks and prior to that in supermarkets and all that they didn't have it it was whatever the album was or whatever mm. tape you know they didn't have this blend or mix and so this kind of democratized the christmas experience in a way you don't have you kind of swing an early vintage and all this sort of stuff yeah. you don't have glam rock you don't have dance when you hear christmas music in a, a shop it's probably thankfully down to this that you, we don't just hear mario lanza or jim reeves in the yeah background. yeah it became the blueprint when i was looking at this album i was surprised it was a single album but up mm. to this point all the other now albums have been doubles this yeah. could quite easily have been a double album and and there starts the argument what else goes on right yeah it's interesting because, you know, we mentioned the, the Bing, Bowie and Bing. I mean, we could have had Mary's Boy Child, December Will Be Magic Again, uh, Little Town, Gaudete. But again, once, once the sort of 90s thing as the double CD came in, these tracks were being sort of sourced and Phil Spector was coming in and licensed. Uh, the Motown Christmas ones were being mined. But they all start to change the shape of these albums, I think. And as we're here today, the latest iteration of this is a now 100 hits of Christmas, which has taken it in so many different directions. The, the 100 thing is sort of almost like exhausting going through that track listing. <laughs> and you think, well, even in my kind of made CD days where I once started making like my own sort of flavoured Christmas compilations that would have things like Loads and Etienne and uh, those Rufus Wainwright spotlight and Christmas, you know, tracks that weren't hits so much, but they became hits in my heart, shall we say. <laughs> and, um, and now to me, they are the Christmas, you know, through uh, the 20 years of kind of making CDs. Coming back to the original album, if, if I was kind of, the desert island disc conceit of like Christmas albums. If I if they were being washed away on the beach, this is the one I'd be like, yeah, I'm happy. It's still got glitter on it, but you know, yeah. that's the one I'll kind of aim for. There was a few false starts in the CD market. It did take a while before the now Christmas brand came by, and it's kind of gone through ups and downs. You know, last Christmas comes and goes. Mariah Carey comes and goes. Um, she gets replaced by Samantha Mumba <laughs> on, on a few of those albums, which is quite baffling to look back now and think. But, you know, it's 
I think I think what all these albums kind of demonstrate is the value of well-established songs that people like at Christmas time, and also how these songs also flow in and out of lots of other songs that aren't particularly Christmassy that at Christmas time we like to hear. Yeah, you know, there's obviously things like the power of love and keeping the dream alive. Yeah. I mean, stay another day. I don't know whether it's maybe I'm a bit of a snob. That number one Christmas album I mentioned earlier, which uh, mm. that was kind of one of the first to kind of edge in things like Pipes of Peace and Stay Another Day and Power of Love. There's a lot to be said about um, Christmas pop. We went to Ducky, the club uh, in Vauxhall, about two or three years ago. They don't really do Christmas there or play Christmas music other than, say, St Etienne or Wham or whatever. But one night for their Christmas, or the nearest Christmas, um, they, uh, they played December pop i.e. records that were huge and mm. huge hits at Christmas. And so, in a way, your memories of something like Band-Aid can kind of change depending over the years of how many years or what, what particular time you've heard it. But sort of hearing I Hear You Knocking or Is It Love You're After or mm. Don't You Want Me or whatever, they're very specific to those those Christmassy times. They're just as valid as Christmas yeah. memories. yeah. I was team always on my mind as opposed to Fairy Tale of New York, that particular 1987. Saying that, although that war- my warmth of kind of Christmas pop or December pop association, it doesn't extend to Gary Jules's Mad World or even. No, 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 I'm, I'm totally with you on that. Totally with you on that. I'm going to put an honourable mention in here just now for the Crackers International EPs. Um, and the associated mixes that went with them. I just thought they were fabulous. And that, to me, is another great example. You know, Stop is just one of those fabulous kind of Christmas songs. I think something happens at, at that kind of release time. It's almost a victory run after an amazing year. And I, like with Crackers International, because I was working at our price, sort of started in 88, you remember the Christmas times more than anything because not only have you got hundreds of now cassettes or whatever, <laughs> and, um, there was kind of a Razor Crackers International cover which kind of has got like a slightly festive but not particularly Christmas yeah. illustration on it. And it's almost uh, as if like, yeah, we've had a pretty good year. Thanks. Here's an EP for Christmas, you know. Exactly. Deliberately Christmas. So that's an amazing little EP. I love that. <laughs> Those tracks on the Now Christmas album being the bedrock of kind of Mm. Christmas compilation since. If you were to kind of say Siri play Christmas music, they'd all be on there as well. You know, it's almost like, you know, you looked at the top 100 singles chart of Christmas week or the week after last year. And there was about 40 tracks that were Christmas records, but there was such a range, you know, Mm. you had... uh, Ariana Grande and uh, John Legend, recent ones in there. But then it was the first time in like 65 years or something that Sleigh Ride by uh, the Ronettes mm. finally made it into the top 40. And things like Jingle Bell Rock, there's associations with things like Home Alone and various yeah. Christmas films well, where people hear them. The 90s culture and film culture brought a lot of these songs back into the public consciousness. Again, it's sort of like the different audiences of Christmas pop. Uh, I mean, Driving Home for Christmas wasn't a particularly big hit when it first came out. No. Now, I can't imagine a Christmas compilation without that. And it's it goes back to the mud thing of, like, it's very much the reality of Christmas where mm. kind of motorways in the wet and kind of 
driving conditions are very much the there's British that Christmas. great line in that song about looking across at the driver next to me he's just the same yeah now, that line doesn't resonate until you actually are in that position and you think yeah it's not exactly tinsel and baubles but yeah. it's reality of christmas for a lot of people yeah because i mean for me you know again when i put in the christmas cd in the car and uh, the other half is because i don't drive I, I, but when we get the trip when we go to b&q and get a tree He'll say, have you got the Christmas CD? And like, once the tree's in the back, we'll put it on. And so by the time we've got back, we've guaranteed um, St. Etienne, uh, Stop the Cavalry, Low, Just Like Christmas, and Chris Rear driving home for Christmas, because that's one of his favourite songs, because it reminds him of driving home for Christmas to yeah. see his, his mum. You know, for me, it's like... <laughs> There isn't a version of kind of catching a train from Liverpool Street to Ipswich and making sure something's held straight (laughs) for Christmas. But it kind of, it has that sort of um, universal appeal of of Christmas where, you know, we we forget about the traipsing, about how wretched the weather. I think, in a way, the waitress is kind of... Yeah. That kind of pricked that balloon as well, that Christmas isn't... You know, Slade, in a way, is very much a reality Christmas. But the waitresses was that sort of like, oh, Dan, guess what, I forgot. You know, just somebody not having a particularly good time, but making it sound really jolly and quite romantic in the end, you know. The waitresses is a great example, though, because I don't think that would have sat well on that first Now album because it wasn't a big UK hit, but it's a fantastic song. And it's when I was doing the bit of research for this, I thought songs that came before that album that weren't on the album, Mm. but actually have grown a life of their own since. Waitress is definitely, I mean, you know, also on that Z album is Christina Things Fall Apart, which again... I know, which is an awesome song. But again, that's a very much a real Christmas, you know, like uh, the New York sort of side of Lonely This Christmas in a way. Again, you know, that wouldn't particularly sit well on the even the Now 100 hit. This is why I started making my own compilations, really, because there's also like Blur or Sailing Song, which was only like a fan club type thing, uh, like given away at some fan club gigs. It's a rum old thing. It kind of tunes into kind of more the sort of steel eye span kind of folky thing, mm. and it's a sort of trad art situation. But I can't imagine my person. I mean, a huge Blur fan anyway. But you know, I can't imagine a Christmas compilation in my house without that track. Which these weird little moments and that does bring it back round to you know where where we are now. We've got the technology. We've got the availability of music everywhere that we can then start to become our own curators for Christmas if you can find the songs. There are lots of labels who are realising that there is a huge market, and also vinyl as well, are kind of digging up these sort of albums. and Things like Ella's, Ella Fitzgerald's A Swinging Christmas, which is an incredibly joyous, fantastic album from, like, 50s, 60s. I mean, also, like, uh, Low Christmas, which people know, more people know the Low song without knowing about Low or any of their catalogue, you know. I'd recommend that. Also, Saint Etienne, A Glimpse of Stocking as well, which... It's fabulous, yeah. If you take Low and Saint Etienne as two examples, it highlights the power of Christmas music and Christmas songs because... Sinetian and Lowe have probably reached a much wider audience through these types of songs. Yeah. And what I don't get with St. Etienne is that why it isn't on more compilation. There's like, you know, it's sort of on a couple of the mid-90s ones. There's also like the Pet Shop Boys, It Doesn't Often Snow at Christmas, which mm. is an amazing song, which had it been released sort of 87, 88, 
would have been huge, would have been yeah. a Christmas number one. And so it's kind of things like that where it's weird how something as amazing as I was born on Christmas Day isn't like in every shot. There is a great leveller about Christmas, the way it can create songs that last. Taking Chris Rio as an example, great slow burner of a track. Well, over now decades, if we consider, what, 32 years since it was released. You think of something like 2,000 Miles by The Pretenders as well. Yeah. Wasn't even a particularly Christmas hit. It just literally says Christmas in one one bit, you know. It must be Christmas time and that's it, yeah. uh But now is part of that bigger Christmas canon. Um, yeah. and you'll, hear it, you'll hear it year in, year out. The Carpenter's Christmas album is amazing. Merry Christmas, Darling should have been on the first Now Christmas, in fact, I think. Yeah. Instead of Christopher, actually, if you're going to raid A&M's archives, you should yeah. have got that one. Merry Christmas, Darling is kind of, that is the song that makes We're Apart, It's True. And I identify with that when I've said cheerio to the other half for, for a week <laughs> while we both go off can't not mention Tracy Thorne's Tinsel and Lights that came out about 2012. That's a slow burner. I mean, it's brilliant anyway, but it's one of those ones that you feel in a way that could gain over the years as sort of one of those classics. We're not short of Christmas music, but the 90s and the ooze in a way didn't really give a damn about Christmas singles. Nobody seemed to want to make a Christmas thing. Now, Spice Girls Christmas single, Two Become One is the perfect December pop. The lighting and the video and everything is very much, yeah, it's Christmas number one. But they could have done something like a, maybe chuck some sleigh bells on that and that would be yeah. deathless, perfect, you know, a classic for all time. It would be like, you know, a stay, a stay another day type vibe. A song like... All I Want for Christmas is You has stood the test of time because it was a targeted Christmas song. Yeah, Mariah making a Christmas album was something that nobody else in her field was really looking yeah. at doing, you know. But you, you think about the, the predecessors up until that year, you had Luther Vandross, you had Alexandra Neal, you had um, Whitney Houston. Over, As I say, over in the States in the holiday season, that didn't really nobody kind of cared in a way and so Mariah making Christmas sounds perfect sense you know up until like 2000 with Destiny's Child and stuff like that you know if Beyonce announced a Christmas album people would lose their shit over it actually one album we haven't mentioned also going back to kind of 80s Christmas is a very special Christmas album yeah that I had Christmas in Hollis run DMC getting that amount of people and that calibre of it's an amazing lineup. I mean you know you look across that point of Sisters, Eurythmics, Whitney, Bruce Springsteen. It was the first time I was aware of the song Santa Baby. That was Madonna's imperial phase in 1987. (laughs) And absolutely got it. We didn't mention London Winter, which I love that era of kind of pre-rock and roll Christmas. Uh, we were in Berlin last year, uh, just before Christmas. It sounded so festive. Uh, they were blasting all this sort of German jolly kind of old school Christmas music at this ice rink that we uh, were walking by. And then a lonely pup in a Christmas shop by Adam Faith came playing. And it just sounded so amazing. And I wasn't even alcoholic or whatever. <laughs> and, so, and so stuff like that and Lionel Bart give us a Chris, kiss for Christmas is kind of... It's that wonderful pre-Beatles period. It's the pizzicato strings 
I think yeah. for me a lot of the time, that Adam feedback kind of sounds that actually just gets Christmas, you know. Exactly. And it's kind of a, an innocent Christmas in a way because yeah. nobody nobody's kind of being ironic or talking about commercialism. You know, it's just this kind of Christmas is a magic type joyous thing. And like, There's a version, um, the Andrew sisters on there doing Little Donkey and it's almost ethereal. It sounds like it's been beamed in from another world. Mm. If the Cocteau Twins had done a version of it in this style, we would call it a modern-day classic. You know? Yeah. Without that initial push in the mid-80s that now did, we may never have got to this point, you know? Yeah. Where, where you know, so many people thought, actually, do you know what? There is a market for Christmas music here. Or let's actually dig deeper back into the vaults and find what's there. A lot of that stuff could have just sat and never, ever been rediscovered. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's, as we're coming full circle, that's why now Christmas is possibly as influential as an album as all your other influential albums. You think of the first Now, how how that changed things. The first Now Christmas did the same. Whatever playlist, whatever age you are on Spotify or with Amazon or whatever, you're going to have two or three of these songs feature in your Christmas compilations, whoever you are. And that's the democratising, wonderful thing of Christmas music, that there's always going to be an audience for these records. Ian, thank you so much for joining me on the Back to Now podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, It's been an honour to be asked. It's been fabulous digging through lots and lots of Christmas memories, looking at the Now Christmas album and beginning to feel slightly festive. Well, exactly. In in, in this particular uh, time, uh, feeling festive is all we have left, I think. <laughs> and, uh, I'm happy to have brought a little bit of cheer and being the uh, the Marks and Spencers catalogue on November the 1st of Christmas. <laughs> no, that sounded awful, but there you go. <laughs> it sounds exactly perfect. It is the perfect British Christmas, and I think we've nailed it. Perfect. <laughs> Ian, thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) We're putting the Christmas bells now. There we are. (laughs) 